Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, died October the 5th, 2011. You may remember some very impressive things were said about him after he died. Things like, Steve Jobs, you led the world into the 21st century. You improved life as we know it. On behalf of every dreamer sitting in his or her garage who's crazy enough to try to change the world, you will be missed. And President Obama said Steve Jobs was among the greatest of American innovators. He transformed our lives, redefined entire industries, and achieved one of the rarest feats of human history. He changed the way each of us sees the world. He changed the way each of us sees the world. Wouldn't that be cool if we did a better job of that? I mean, here we are, children of God, right? God the all-powerful, God the all-knowing, God by his Holy Spirit living in us. Wouldn't it be cool if we did a better job at helping people or changing the way people see the world, see God, see life? You see, I suggest to you that was Joshua's challenge. We read about Joshua in the manuscript we call the book of Joshua. When God brought the people of Egypt out of, or people of Israel out of Egypt, Brought him to the edge of the promised land, Joshua becomes a significant part of the story. I mean, he's one of the 12 guys who were sent into the promised land, spy out the land. You know the story. He comes back. He's pumped. He's dreaming about all the stuff that God is going to do for them, through them. But they rejected his leadership. They rejected his attempt to help them see their world differently. And as a result, the people turned around, went back into the desert, and never got to enjoy what God wanted them to enjoy. And now when we come to Joshua chapter 1, 40 years have passed, they're back at the edge of the promised land, and Joshua has another opportunity to help his people change the way they see their worlds. He has the opportunity to help people activate their faith, move forward into the land that God had promised to them. And so last Sunday, we talked about what it means to activate our faith. And we said, well, first of all, activating audacious audacious faith means letting go of yesterday. For Joshua, it meant letting go of failure, letting go of frustration and disappointment, and letting go of his fear. And we challenged ourselves to think of what is it that we need to let go in order to possess the promised land that God has for us? Maybe it's a commitment to a no-risk lifestyle. Maybe it's a determination to do what we want, when we want it, where we want it, and with whoever we want to. Maybe for some of us, it's a bad experience. Maybe a bad relationship. Maybe a refusal to forgive. Joshua, to experience God's best for you, you need to let go. Secondly, we said last week, activating audacious faith means knowing that he will, not just believing that he can, but knowing that he will because of what he has promised. God shared six promises with Joshua. Joshua, I will, I will, I will, I will, Joshua. You see, God didn't come to Joshua and then remind Joshua of all of his great character qualities, all of his abilities, how gifted he was, what he had going for him. But what God did, God talked to Joshua about his own faithfulness. 
God based his argument on his own ability, not Joshua's. Joshua, I'm with you. Joshua, I will not leave you. Joshua, that's your confidence. That's your hope. Joshua, it's not about you. It's about me. We also said activating daring bold faith means believing that God's promise is bigger than our perhaps or our maybes or our doubts or fears. There will be God's promise and there will be our fears, our doubts, our perhapses, our maybes. But we said that's the way it should be because if it wasn't that way, we wouldn't need faith. And it's faith that pleases God. And so God gives Joshua all of these fantastic promises. He gives them to you. He gives them to me. And then it's like he says, okay, Joshua, to activate this faith, there's some instructions you need to follow. God, what is it that you want me to follow? Well, Joshua, first of all, be strong and courageous. In fact, in chapter 1, he says it three times. And then verse 7, Joshua, be careful to obey that you may be successful wherever you go. Joshua, okay, you can't separate the two. Success and the word of God come together. So be careful to obey. And then Joshua, do not let this book depart from your mouth. What would you say? From your mouth, not mind, not thinking process? No, from your mouth. God, what do you mean? Sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Actually, it's not weird. Here's kind of my paraphrase of what God is saying to Joshua. Joshua, don't stop talking God's words to yourself. Okay? Don't stop preaching to yourself. Just keep preaching to yourself day and night so that you may be careful to obey everything that's written in it. And then Joshua, don't let this book depart from your mouth. Meditate on it. And then Joshua, do not let it depart out of your mouth, so you will be careful to do everything that is written in it. Don't forget, when you're standing in front of your mirror and you're preaching the truth to yourself, don't forget, you also have to do it. Now, let me pause here for a moment, because, you see, here's one of the things I think we tend to do with these Bible characters who we kind of see as heroes of our faith. You see, if you're like me and you're reading this, you're probably thinking, boy, Joshua, he was one cool dude, you know? I mean, all this incredible stuff that God did through him, he had this bold, daring faith. God used him in some fantastic ways, and we're thinking, that's not me. That will never be me. It's out of my league. God will never do stuff like this in my life. And so what happens? We walk all the way through our week, never really expecting to change the way people think about their world, about their life, about God. We walk through the week, never really expecting God to use us in some significant way. But here's what I find interesting. I mean, look again at those five things. Is there any up there that you cannot do? Any of those five things that you do not have the ability to do? You see, every one of the things that God asked Joshua to do, all the things that built his faith, every one of those things are things that you and I can do. None of them are out of our reach. So I guess what I'm saying, because you don't see yourself 
leading people through the Red Sea, crossing the Jordan River, walking around the walls of Jericho until they come tumbling down, or praying a sun standstill prayer. Listen, don't write off this story as though it has no relevance to our lives. It's not so out of the world as you think. God says to Joshua, God says to you, to me, hey, five instructions. Be strong, courageous. Be careful to obey. Don't let this book depart from your mouth. Keep preaching to yourself. Meditate on and do it. And then watch God do some significant work in and through you. Joshua, be careful to do it. And we wonder how they did. I mean, we wonder how well they did in following these instructions. You see, when we continue reading their story, we learn that activating faith will also cost us something. It costs Joshua something. It costs the people of Israel something. It will cost you and me something. Living the life that God has for us, enjoying God the way he means means to be enjoyed, will cost us. It's just part of the journey. But again, that really shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, think about it. How did God accomplish salvation? It cost God something, right? He had to give up his son. It cost Jesus something. Not my will, but your will, God. It cost Jesus his physical life. Yeah, it will cost us something. Back to our story. Let's jump to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua has brought the people of Israel to the edge of the promised land. He sends in those two spies to check out the city of Jericho. They come back. Joshua leads them across the Jordan River. And now they're poised to take on that city-state Jericho. But before we're introduced to that story, there's a story that, my guess, you and I, we never heard in Sunday school. I mean, I don't ever remember my teachers pulling out paper cutouts, putting them on the flannel graph, and saying, today we're going to talk about... I I mean, most of my early Sunday school teachers were older single women who probably would have felt very uncomfortable and awkward with the word circumcision, right? So in my day, growing up, it seemed like the first part of Joshua chapter 5 never happened. My guess is if you grew up in church, that was true for you too. I mean, every Sunday school teacher skipped over this part. But it is a real part of Israel's history. You see, it's an important part of the story for Joshua and the nation of Israel for two reasons. It reveals something of Joshua's trust in God, but also sheds light on the price that Joshua and the people had to pay. So let's move. Anyway, people of Israel now move from the east side of the Jordan River to the west side. They're poised to attack the city-state of Jericho. And they, like God says, uh, wait a minute here, Let, let's, let's push the pause button. I, I, we need to do something here. So let's read what happens. This gets a little awkward, a little painful, at least if you're a guy. Verse 2, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and, and what? God, I don't think I heard you right. Um, you're breaking up. What was that again? <laughs> Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Verse 3. 
So Joshua procrastinated. Uh, established a committee. Joshua consulted with the health department and told them to take their time in making a decision. Doesn't say that, does it? So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites. Ouch. Now, in our day, circumcision is not that big of a deal, right? I mean, we've got hospitals. We've got modern technology. We've got educated doctors. And best of all, we have anesthesia. In our day, it's almost done shortly after birth, but they didn't have Swedish surgical instruments, didn't have surgeons. This was just, hey, one big ouch. Now, some of you may be wondering, what's this all about anyway? I mean, why is God asking them to be circumcised? I mean, this doesn't make God look very good, does it? Makes God look rather sadistic. But you see, if you were a Jew, this would have made perfect sense to you because, you see, as a Jew, male circumcision was a physical sign of a spiritual covenant between God and his people. It was part of the deal that God had made with Abraham, and God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and, and, and through you are going to bless the world, and the sign of your commitment to me is circumcision. And so it's a very meaningful event to the Jewish people, signifying God's promise as well as their commitment to obey him to follow his instructions. By the way, you may know this, but if we go into the Newer Testament, the same ritual takes place, but at a different level. In the Older Testament, it's a physical act. In the Newer Testament, it's a circumcision of the heart. It's an internal thing. But, you know, I don't know which is more painful. I mean, I don't remember my first circumcision, but I'll never forget the second one. Because, you see, where it was a time where, where God pulled me apart to do some major surgery on my heart so he could work through me. And that's what this is about. God working in us, and there's that, there's that internal circumcision that needs to take place. You see, what happened in Joshua's day, and this is explained for us in verses 4 to 8, under Moses' leadership, the people of Israel come to the edge of the promised land. They say no to God. In spite of the fact that God wanted to do, take them into the land, they said no. They went back into the desert. Now, 40 years later, God was about to launch them into an experience of their lifetime. And it appears they're ready now to activate their faith and move forward with God. But you see, during those 40 years of wilderness wanderings, they had not done what God had asked them to do. They had not obeyed. They had not followed God through on what God asked them to do. And so it's clear from the context of Joshua 5, God was not going to allow the Israelites to move forward into the promised land until they obeyed his commands and be circumcised. And so it's like God says, before I take you in, there's something you need to take care of, but God, it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It's going to be very uncomfortable, inconvenient. We'll not be able to do anything for days. And it's like God says, Hey, it's not optional. You will not. You cannot enter the promised land without first dealing 
with a sin in your life. Yeah, it's going to hurt. It's going to cost you something. Well, it's great to see how the children will respond. It's like to say, God, hey, okay, let's do it. Verse 8. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp. In other words, they weren't going anywhere. I think I can understand why. They remained where they were in camp until they were healed. In other words, no running ahead of God this time. Now, let's not leave this back into the Older Testament, okay? Let's take a moment to apply this. I mean, it's tempting to read this and think, ah, oh, it's kind of interesting, but so what? But here's why this story is important to us. Because the truth is, you and I, we have a land to possess. We don't use this language. We have different names for it. Jesus called it the abundant life. He talked about rivers of water flowing in and out of us. He talked about the branch attached to the vine. Luke, the one who wrote the book of Acts, talked about it as an empowered life. Paul referred to it as a life filled with love and joy and peace and gentleness, self-control, kindness. He talked about a life free of anger and bitterness and resentment and guilt and shame. John Piper popular author today, talks about this as enjoying God, not just serving God, but enjoying God. Other authors talk about it as an emotionally healthy spirituality, different ways to describe our promised land. The point is, before you and I can take that promised land, whatever it might be for us, God may have to do some cutting. He may have to strip away whatever it is that's keeping us from trusting him wholeheartedly and completely. And sometimes, maybe most of the time, it's painful, uncomfortable. But before God will do that work in us, it's something we have to do. You see, I don't know what it might be for you. See, at one point in my life, it was an issue of motives. You see, there was a time, and this was when I was my first church, there was a time where I was doing everything, the right things, but I was doing them for the wrong reasons. And what was driving my life, my relationships, my decisions, my actions were sinful motives. And you see, they had to be cut out. Again, I don't know what it might be for you. Maybe it's going to depend on what God wants to do in and through your life. Maybe for some of us, it's a self-centered dream, and that needs to be cut out. Maybe it's a commitment to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, where we want to do it, and with whom we want to do it. Maybe it's the way that we have prioritized our lives. Or maybe it's a commitment to try to control everything and everyone around us. Or maybe it's a commitment to hide. I mean, you don't want anyone to find out what's going on inside of you. You're so afraid that if people know what's going on inside of you, they're not going to like you. And so you're all about managing your image, and that needs to be cut out. Anyway, back to our story in Joshua. Israel obeys. 
Now God is ready for them to move forward. Again, you know the story. The walls of Jericho, they come tumbling down. It's a great victory. And you would think, hey, they got the message, right? They heard God. They realized sin really messes things up. Obedience is an option. It's not an option. Obedience is essential to the work of God in their life. And you would think, they got the message. Except, well, after Jericho, the next point is an attack on Ai. It was supposed to be an easy win. Kind of like, you know, going, taking over Chilliwack, little town. Nothing to worry about. They send in an army, 3,000 men, except the unthinkable happens. They go on attack. They come back with their tail between their legs. 36 of their friends killed in action. And I suggest you probably two reasons for their defeat. One, they felt... No need to consult God in this one. But secondly, you see, when the Israelites conquered Jericho, God had told them to destroy everything, not to take anything. And what Joshua did not know, there was one guy, Achan, who thought, oh, I guess the rules don't apply to me. Never happens to us, does it? But he thought, rules don't apply to me. And so, hey, my wife would love some of that bling. And some of those gold bars, I mean, that would really help my retirement portfolio. And so he took a bunch of stuff and he hid it under his tent. In other words, another case of disobedience. And so it's like God has them hit the pause button and says to them, you cannot possess, you will not possess the life I have meant for you to live if you disobey. But Joshua, he doesn't know this is happening. He just assumes everything is great between them and God. Except now there's 36 of his friends. Husbands, Dad's not come back. He's totally embarrassed, totally humiliated. He's in a dark place emotionally and spiritually. And so in chapter 7, verse 7, we find Joshua on his face in prayer. And look what he says. Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? By the way, that's, that's us, isn't it? Why, God? Why? Come on. Why? Why did you? It's your fault, God. God, why did you bring us out here anyway? God, look what you've done. Joshua keeps going. Verse 8. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? God, this is not only an embarrassment to us. This must be an embarrassment to you as well. Come on, God. God, don't you feel embarrassed for your people? The people who represent you on this earth, I mean, we're looking like a bunch of losers, God. God, this isn't looking good for you. It's kind of interesting the way he approaches God, isn't it? But I think it leads us to an important section. It suggests to us that activating our faith requires action. You see, in chapter 7, verse 10, God is talking, and God says something that we would not expect I mean, this is not the way we usually think. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Joshua, why are you praying? What do you mean? 
I mean, we're always supposed to pray, aren't we? I mean, you said, call upon us in the day of trouble. We're in the day of trouble. God, we should be praying. No, Joshua, this isn't a time to pray. This is time to stand up. And folks, what happens next is huge. Hope I can communicate it clearly. Verse 11, Israel has sinned. No, wait a minute, God, time out here. I mean, we know the rest of the story, right? I mean, we know it's not Israel. It's just this one guy. God, did you miss something? It, it, it wasn't Israel. It was just one guy. And it's like God says, sit down. I'm not finished yet. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in their own possession. God, no, no, it wasn't them. It was he stole. He violated. He did it. It was he who sinned. By the way, when it says devoted things, you see, God told them not to take any stuff. And it's kind of like he said, I just want you to leave all of that as kind of a burnt offering to me, as an expression of your commitment to me, of the fact that you are trusting me, depending on me, you just devote all that stuff to me. Just leave it for me. And God says, that stuff, you stole it. You lied. You grabbed some of that stuff. Verse 12, that's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. In other words, don't blame me. Verse 13, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. In other words, Joshua, there's no time to pray. It's time to act. Get up. It's time to act. Don't blame me. So they get the search party together. They find Achan. and says they take Achan, his son and daughter. But wait a minute, that's not fair. Right, it isn't fair. But you see, what God is doing here is trying to keep his people free from the very things that would keep them from enjoying the life he wanted to give to them. He wanted them to understand obedience is not optional. They have to get rid of the sinful element before they can move forward. And technically, we know in the Newer Testament, there's a word for it. It's called repentance. By the way, I've got to ask, do you ever hide behind your prayers when you should be getting up and taking action? Ever do that? You say, well, how do I know that? Well, here's the rule. If God has already addressed the issue in his word, then you don't need to pray about it. You just need to do it. For example, we often hear people pray, God, be with us. God, be with me. God, be with them. You've heard that, right? And when you think of it, isn't that kind of a silly prayer? I mean, how many times in Scripture has God said, I'm with you, I'm with you? You see, the issue is we just need to go out and act as though God is with us. We don't need to pray about that. You don't need to pray about forgiving someone. You just need to do it. You don't need to pray about being honest. You just need to do it. You don't need about our tendency to, you know, gossip and be sarcastic. God's already covered that one in Ephesians 4, 29. Anyway, Joshua gets up, deals with the sin issue in the camp. They go out against attack AI, and this time God gives them victory. So, here's the deal. I, I, I'm sure all of us would agree that God can use us in spite of our failures, in spite of our mistakes, in spite of our sin. I mean, you would agree, right? 
Let me take it a step further. God in his grace also can take our failures, our disobedience, and then through that show us how capable he is. In other words, he can take our failures, our mistakes, and actually use them to make us more likely a candidate for a miracle. I mean, that's not to say that we can go out and do anything we want when we want it. It doesn't work that way. You and I, we reap what we sow. We will always suffer the negative consequences of bad choices. God's grace is not a license to sin. It's not some cheap perfume that we can splash on to cover up the stink of our sin and disobedience. But his grace invites you and me to get up, repent, move in his strength, and live the life he's meant us to live. And so I need to ask, maybe for some of us here this morning in Christianity, this Jesus thing is not what we thought it would be. I mean, your expectations haven't been met. You're kind of disappointed, frustrated. You thought by becoming a Christian it was going to, but it's, it's not what you thought it would be. And so I need to ask, any areas in your life where maybe you're not obeying? Any areas where you need to repent? Or maybe like Joshua, you're blaming God. But it's not God. It's actually you, if you're honest with yourself, hiding something that you need to let go of. Hiding something maybe that you need to take action on. You see, if we want God to do some stuff in our life, in us and through us, we cannot try to end run around the sinful things that we have done or are doing. Joshua 5 and 7 tells us, obedience is not option, optional. You want what God has done or what God has for you? You want your promised land? It's obedience. And sometimes that obedience will cost us something. It did for Israel. It really did. But look what they got, folks. Look what they got. The promised land, the fulfillment of God's promise, the very thing their grandparents and their parents had hoped for for years and years and years. That's what they got to enjoy. And that's the way it works. You see, it's my choice. It's your choice. It's our choice as a church. Amen.